Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hey, everyone. Ray here. If you want to own your own piece of World War II history, you should check out Investment Caster. This artist creates amazing models of tanks, planes, and landing craft out of pure silver. Each one is hand-casted and exquisitely finished to do justice to the genius engineering of World War II. And it's 99.9% pure silver, making it an artifact and a treasure. Check out the current selection at investmentcaster.com and use promo code HISTORY for $10 off your first purchase. I've got mine. You should go get yours. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 403, Rommel is stopped in his tracks. Last time, we saw as Monty was building up his forces to set a trap, Rommel was putting the finishing touches on his latest attack plan. It's fair to say that the Desert Fox was not 100% in his health, nor with his plan, as he had attacked from the south several times already. He should have known better, but still had faith in his panzers. And like many of those recent battles, Rommel, in thinking everyone was as dedicated as himself, gave his four armored columns that were about to head out over ambitious objectives to achieve. At 11 p.m. August 30th, the Panzers were to head out, get through the minefields, push back the tanks of the 7th Motor Brigade and the 4th Armored Brigade, and be at their designated place to turn north all by 6 a.m. As Rommel had the most faith in the Africa Corps, they were to head further than the others by traveling some 30 miles or 34 kilometers in the dark and reach their jump-off point to turn north, that being due south of the highest point of Alam Halfa Ridge. This, of course, would put the Africa Corps within range of the 8th Armored Brigade, who were the Allies' most eastern armored position, Still, this could work if the British-led forces did what they normally do, attack, panic, and retreat. Before the moment the Panzers headed out for the few days prior to this, Rommel had pulled out all the stops in order to hide his true intentions, which fooled no one, for several reasons. First, there was Rommel's pattern of attack. Why smash into a well-entrenched defensive line further north when you could simply do an end run or hit the line in a relatively weak place? It only cost time and fuel, though the latter was becoming a growing concern for Rommel. Second, Monty had received intercepted German messages coming to Rommel so he could see his adversary's cards. And lastly, the RAF was routinely sent up To update Monty and his staff, several medium bombers with reconnaissance equipment would fly over the southern section of Rommel's buildup, though they were heavily escorted by fighters. And 
If Monty had no other indication of what Rommel was up to, the intense reaction by the Luftwaffe to his reconnaissance flights would have told him that the enemy had something to hide there in the south, which, of course, was their panzer buildup. Before the first panzer moved out, Monty had lost eight reconnaissance planes and 15 other planes during the last week or so, but it had been worth it. Starting on August 21st, Monty had ordered round-the-clock bombing of the enemy vehicles congregating in the south. The damage they inflicted before the battle got underway was not insignificant. But it was the evening of August 30th, the eve of battle, that the RAF really poured it on. Naval aircraft helped the bombers by dropping flares, and it got to the point, at least to Rommel, that attacking was better than just sitting here, getting hammered. And even though this was already a part of the plan, Rommel hoped his fake attack on the northern end of the defensive line, defended by 30th Corps, would relieve some of the pressure. It did not. Monty, nor anyone else, expected a serious attempt by the enemy to the north. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Still, the Panzers moved out. Rommel's next attack was underway. And if all went well, his men may end up resting in Alexandria very soon. At 2 a.m., now August 31st, the Panzers reached the minefields. They started clearing a path when the 7th Motor and the 4th Light Armored Brigades engaged them. Thus, the attackers were forced to make a path protect those making the path, all the while fighting the Allied tanks on the other side. This was not how this was supposed to go. To be sure, the two British tank brigades were not giving it all they had. No, their job was to delay, to disrupt Rommel's timetable, and, quite frankly, take out as many enemy vehicles as possible before they broke through the minefield. This plan worked well enough as it was not until dawn that Africa Corps, leading the way, got through the first minefield. Per Rommel, they should have been many miles to the east by now, ready to turn north, but that was the least of Rommel's worries. He was soon told that General Nehring had been wounded and General von Bismarck, commander of the 21st Panzer, had been killed. 
Rommel seriously considered calling off the attack. Yet his current chief of staff, Colonel Baylorin, replied, I'll take command of the 21st Panzer. Let's continue this. Stopping does not benefit us, only the enemy. At 8 a.m., Rommel agreed the attack would continue. And the very first thing that Baylor did was tell Africa Corps they would not be going so far east before turning north, which would put them on a path right at the 22nd Armor Brigade's location. Not that they knew this. But that turn north was still in their future. The majority of Panzers were still trying to clear a path through the minefields, but were still being harassed by the British armor of 7th Motor and 4th Armored. Fortunately, there was poor visibility, so the RAF were unable to truly go after the now lined-up Axis vehicles, waiting their turn. In time, 15th Panzer reached their turning point and started heading north. An hour later, 21st Panzer reached their turning point and started north, now on the left flank of 15th Panzer. With the Panzers heading north, 22nd Armor Brigade had the job of getting the enemy forces to come right at them to guide the German columns to the middle of the cauldron. If they could do this, then the 15th and 21st Panzer would have to contend with not only the 22nd Armored Brigade, but the 23rd, a bit to their north, and all of the guns of the 44th Division on Alam Halfa Ridge, not to mention the 8th Armored Brigade that was to the east. And perhaps, if things truly went well, the 7th Motor and 4th Armored Light Brigade could then follow up and close the trap from the south. And yet, all this depended upon getting the Panzers to come at the 22nd, just below the western edge of the Alam Halfa Ridge. But the Panzers, apparently, were not playing ball. So the 22nd Armored sent out a few Crusader tanks, as if they were accidentally giving away their position. But the Germans did not take the bait. They were heading around the 22nd's position and going directly after the ridge. This did not suit the overall plan, so more tanks from the 22nd went out to again tempt their enemy their way. This also failed. The hours were going by, so soon it was decided to show the enemy that the 22nd wasn't just a few tanks, but an entire brigade worthy of their attention, or at least concern. But by this time, dusk was approaching. And in the last hour of daylight, the Panzers and the 22nd Armor Brigade came together in a frenzied close-quarter battle that pulled no punches. Here's how the 22nd Armor Brigade's commander, Brigadier Pip Roberts, described the clash. At about 3.30 p.m., reports come in from the right of the two squadrons. Now I can see the enemy myself through my glasses. They are coming up the line of telegraph poles which lead in front of our position. It is fascinating to watch them as one might watch a snake curl up and ready to strike. And now they all turn left and face us and begin to advance slowly. The greatest concentration seems to be opposite of CLY, County of London Yeomanry, and the anti-tank guns of the Rifle Brigade. This concentration that he's speaking of is about 87 panzers. I warn all units over the air not to fire until the enemy are within 1,000 yards. 
It can't be long now, and then in a few seconds, the tanks of the CLY open fire, and the battle is on. Once one is in the middle of a battle, time is difficult to judge. But it seems only a few minutes before nearly all the tanks of the Grant Squadron of the CLY were on fire. The new German long 75mm is taking a heavy toll. The enemy tanks have halted, as they have their own casualties, but the situation is serious. There is a complete hole in our defense. I hurriedly warned the Greys, that is, the Reserve Brigade, that they must move at all speed from their defensive positions and plug the gap. Meanwhile, the enemy tanks are edging forward again, and they have got close to the Rifle Brigade's anti-tank guns, who have held their fire marvelously to a few hundred yards. When they open up, they inflict heavy casualties on the enemy, but through sheer weight of numbers, some guns are overrun. The SOS artillery fire is called for. It comes down almost at once, right on top of the enemy tanks. This, together with the casualties they have received, checks them. The bad news for the Allies was that a British tank squadron had been destroyed, yet it was the Germans who fled south giving up the battlefield. The panzer units settled down for the night. No, things had not gone their way, but they were in a better position now, though with fewer tanks, when they had started. The next day would see them launch their attack anew. But the Allies would not wait until morning. Making sure that the Germans were not deceiving them with settling down for the night, south of the Alam Halfa Ridge, the RAF let loose. Here's how the British official history puts it. A night of continuous bombing left a pall of smoke for countless petrol fires and burning vehicles. Of this and the next few nights, the Africa Corps recorded not only was the damage very great, but officers and men were badly shaken and their fighting capacity considerably reduced by the enforced dispersal lack of sleep, and the strain of waiting for the next bomb. It wasn't too long ago that the RAF had been complaining about the Army being unable to lay down a bomb line so there would be no friendly fire deaths. Now, and it would be going too far to give Monty credit for this, the Panzers were huddled together, relatively speaking, and the British tank crews were far away. Thus, the RAF pounded the enemy night after night, until those left alive escaped the way they came in. But that was still a few days in the future. And now that Rommel had committed his panzers to the attack of Alam Halfa Ridge, which was not going so well, Monty committed his forces. First, he gave control of 23rd Armor Brigade to General Horrocks of 13th Corps. As it was just north of the 22nd Armored, they could move and soon be ready to assist. Monty also had Horrocks tell the New Zealanders, who had been stationed on the Alam Naville Ridge, just above where the Panzers had entered, to now head south and close off the paths that they had made through the minefields. And hoping this would be needed, Monty also had Ramsden pull from his 30th Corps up north and create a reserve force. Their job was to be ready to follow should Rommel pull up stakes and make a dash for Fuca. This left 7th Motor and 4th Armor Brigades to come up north a bit and approach the Panzers from the south. 
the second part of Monty's trap was set. As the sun rose on September 1st, 15th Panzer tried to edge their way past the 22nd to their east, again trying to get to the Alam Halfa Ridge to gain the high ground. But the 21st Panzer could not join in or help as they were running low on fuel, which is when General Gatehouse ordered the 8th Armor Brigade to join the 22nd Brigade. The idea was for these two combined brigades to hit the 15th Panzer, reducing it to nothing, and then take on the isolated, stranded 21st Panzer. But as the 8th Armor was moving west, they ran in to the 15th Panzer, who were heading to the northeast. Right away, as had happened so many times before, the Germans put up their anti-tank guns and taught the British tank crews another nasty lesson. However, in return, the Allied artillery and air power dispensed their own nasty lessons on the panzers. In fact, such was the aerial bombardment that Africa Corps headquarters went through. They lost seven officers, and Rommel himself was nearly killed while lying in a trench. Then came the night of hell for Africa Corps. When the sun went down on September 1st, the RAF came out again in full force, bombing all through the night, and this was joined by the nonstop artillery attacks. By morning, September 2nd, the Germans were shaken to their core. Rommel, desperate, ordered all forces to go on the defensive. Meanwhile, he got out his maps and started planning a retreat that would take three days. At this moment, when it was clear the enemy was no longer concerned with moving forward, Monty was sorely tempted to release everything he had at Rommel. But, as he was on the verge of a local victory, he did not want to cock it up with his own eagerness. All good things in their time. No, he told all to sit tight. Only the New Zealanders heading south to close the minefield gaps were allowed to carry on. Major General Bernard Freiburg, in charge of the New Zealanders, on September 3rd sent the 132nd Brigade from 44th Division and his own 5th New Zealand Brigade under Kippenberger to the south. However, this limited advance towards the minefield gaps was halted by the enemy. Rommel saw to that, and Freiburg lost 275 New Zealanders and 700 other British troops. Such had been their determination to block the escape route, but that had been more than matched by the Axis. But what continued to drive Rommel and his men crazy were the constant air and artillery attacks. Men and vehicles were being lost at an alarming rate. In fact, for these last four days, the RAF had flown 2,500 sorties. And for the first time, the U.S. Army Air Force intervened in a battle. They flew 180 sorties using Liberators, Mitchells, and Kitty Hawks, which helps explain the constant pressure provided by the Allied Air Arm. With the Battle of Alam El Hafa Ridge over, both sides took stock. The British lost 1,750 men, the Germans 1,859 men, and the Italians, 1,051. As for the all-important tank losses, the British lost 67, to the Axis, 49. 
in terms of air power, the Allies lost 68 aircraft to the Axis 41. Thus, the losses for both were pretty even. But all that mattered was that the Allies had held. Alam Halfa Ridge was still theirs, and Rommel had just been defeated. His men had been defeated, his panzers had been defeated, and altogether, they had been stopped in their tracks. From this moment on, Monty got busy addressing the gaps and weaknesses in his 8th Army. More men, more guns, more tanks, more planes were on their way. He would build up his force, and only then would he attack again. If Rommel wanted to attack him before then, well, he was welcome to. But Rommel literally was in no shape to order an attack. By now, he was suffering from exhaustion, a liver infection, and low blood pressure. Thus, General George Stoom was flown in to take over. Rommel showed him the area, his plans should the Allies attack before he returned, and then he flew out on September 19th. Rommel needed medical attention. Stoom needed the enemy not to attack until he was ready, and Monty needed time to speed up. He had Africa Corps on the ropes and was most desirous to start punching again. Postscript. A bit of background on General George Stoom. Stoom had participated in the fighting in Poland, France, Bulgaria, Yugoslavia, and Greece. Next, he had been a part of Operation Barbarossa and had led forces as Hitler wanted the oil fields of the Caucasus captured. But in June 1942, some German plans were captured by Soviet troops. This should come as no surprise, as the Soviets had many partisans operating to the rear of the German positions. Either way, Hitler blamed Stum, and he wanted him court-martialed and imprisoned. Eventually, the other officers calmed Hitler down, and the man was pardoned, and then sent to North Africa to take over for Rommel. In short, Stum had plenty of experience. He just did not have enough men or material at this point to do the job, but it was better than spending five years in prison. And if I may venture into the world of opinion, Monty should certainly be given credit for what he had just achieved, but I can't help but think that the generals Alan Cunningham, Neil Ritchie, and Claude Auchinleck should be included in that praise. They had to deal with Rommel when he had been healthier and had more men, while they had Churchill acting as a backseat driver the whole time. In the end, they may not have beaten Rommel, but they stood up to him. They survived, and they kept victory from the Desert Fox. Thus, they were an important part of the story that determined the eventual victory in North Africa. And finally, as for the investment caster I spoke of at the beginning of the episode, I could have picked the P-51 Mustang, the SR-71 Blackbird, one of my favorites, the M-4 Sherman, or the Tiger-1 Tank, not to mention something like Stonehenge. Again, pretty cool. But no, I chose the Landing Craft Assault. Why? Because it is now sitting on my desk, and it's a reminder that while tanks and planes are important in war, it's the things like the landing craft that actually made victory possible. D-Day was not possible until there were enough landing craft. 
In other words, it's the details, the little things, the support or understructure that makes all the other parts work. It's a reminder to me to pay attention to those little things, like these miniatures. They, the little things, equally determine success or failure. Take care, everyone. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.